0: Welcome to the Stunt show on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is Mark Zomek, and I am excited to bring you this week's show. As listeners of the Nachum Siegel Network and JM the AM know, we are always interested in how people balance their religious life with the modern world. Some people eschew modern uh, modernity and insulate themselves. Some people feel an observant lifestyle is too constricting in and the modern and vibrant world. Others, and I include myself in this category, do our best to strike a balance between the two worlds. When Avraham goes to buy the Ma'arat the HaMachpelah from Ephron, he tells him, I am a stranger and a resident with you. Commentators notice this apparent contradiction. The Rav, Rav Yosef Alevi Salavechik, uses this as a metaphor for us in America. Yes, we live here. We need to be a part and parcel of, our, of this society. But we will always be somewhat strangers. My guest today is David Sable. David is the global CEO of Y&R, one of the world's leading global marketing communications companies with 186 offices in 90 countries, according to your website. Young and Rubicon is one of the original Madison Avenue agencies, today celebrating their 90th year. Their blue trip cli- their blue trip chip clients include Campbell Soup, Colgate, JCPenney, the NHL, and Xerox. David is an active philanthropist and extremely generous with his time. He is the chair of UNICEF's New York board and a former School president, I think. David and his wife, Debbie, have two married daughters and, as we say, a number of grandchildren. For full disclosure, David and I share more than just being past presidents. The company that I work for, MEC, is a spinoff of what was once the media department of YNR, and thus we both work for WPP. David Sable, welcome to the Stutz Show. Thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> um, so we're the I fellow
1: with a fellow former uh, Shul, Shul president, right? Said.
0: So we can we can share scars of being Shul presidents. Although I would have to say that my, my experience was was mostly positive.
1: Yeah, but I'm also a rabbi's son, so my scars go deeper and broader.
0: <laughs> well, and and that's where where I sort of want to start before we even talk about how we do the balance. I think it's um, interesting to just get us uh bring us fast forward to the background. So um, you came up through the system, as we say. Um, your father, as I uh, – the little research I was able to do was the founding rabbi of the Riverdale Church Jewish Church Center. Center. Yes. So – and even in one of the articles that I had seen, he basically went up to Riverdale with a list of people.
1: Yeah. He came – the truth is that my father could have been a Chabad rabbi. Now, he came up, it, it, and if you find, you, you, actually can, you actually can Bing, and I say Bing because Microsoft <laughs> is a client. So for those who don't know Bing, you can Google it. Um, Yeshiva University actually called him. It was, a, it was a piece in the New York Times called him a Daniel Boone rabbi, and that was a program. They were going to start this thing called the Daniel Boone rabbinate, and Riverdale, believe it or not, back in, I guess, the early 50s, was a wasteland. It was farmland. It was There was mm-hmm. nothing there. And there were a few people who had moved up there, a couple of guys who were graduates from YU. And they went back to YU and they said, can we get a rabbi? And so Dr. Belkin came to my father and said, all right, here you go. Mm-hmm. Here's the opportunity. Right. I, I, make the most of there it. There
0: are a number of stories like that. I know uh, Aaron Rakefa tells similar stories where Dr. Belkin says, I got teachers all over the place. I need community rabbis. Yeah. So,
1: And he sent them up there. And the truth is, what my father used to do, he would go around. He used to... Pay money to the superintendents of the buildings around where the shul was going to be built to tell him when anybody put one of those little boxes <laughs> on their door, uh, and he knew a Jew moved in, and he'd go knock on their door.
0: Well, wow. so it was a wasteland, as you say, yeah. up there in Riverdale. Yeah, not, wasteland's
1: wrong. I mean, it was, a, uh, it was farmland. It was. There was, it was not nothing. Pieces, there was no. No. no the no yeah.
0: main event hadn't, right. there yet. <laughs> hadn't come and left. Um, and so he also, I think, was one, among the founders of SAR.
1: Yes. Uh-huh. So the Riverdale Hebrew Day School was the one of the three founding pieces of SAR, and my father was the founder of, of that school as well.
0: So what was it like growing up as a shul rabbi? I mean, just I, I can ask my mother the same questions. But what was it like uh, growing up as the son of the shul rabbi?
1: You know, on the one hand, it's it sort of you know sort of celebrity status. Right? right. You're the you're the son of the rabbi. That's that's sort of a big deal. On the other hand, there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage that goes mm-hmm. with it, and, and I have yet to meet the rabbi's son who's not carrying around some of the some of the bags. You have to behave a little bit better than everybody else. Right. You have to be able to sing Anim z'mirot before anyone else. You know, you have to lean before anyone else. So it, it, it it's not easy. And I think that the biggest issue, and I think it's still an issue. To and I I talk to a lot of rabbis today. I, I have to say that over the years I've been able to counsel quite a number right. of, of uh, rabbinical families whose children were having issues with being, um, you know, with with being children of rabbis. Very often you find yourself sitting at a table on Shabbat in somebody's house, and like people are talking about your dad, right? And they just kind of talk over your head because they assume you're a kid, maybe you don't understand, and it's not like they have anything personal against you, and right. maybe not even against him. But it's very disconcerting. And I think that it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy place to be. I don't envy any rabbi. In fact, it's one of the reasons I decided not to become a
0: rabbi. One of the reasons. Yeah. I'm sure right. there, there were right. There are probably, many others. Right. But that was one of
1: them. I decided I would never, ever subject my children to that.
0: So, and, and, um, so you went to SAR or
1: whatever? I didn't did. go. There was no SAR in, in those days. Um, it, it was, it was no Rivetal Hebrew Day School, right. which was, um, River Hebrew Day School began actually with my sister's grade and she's three years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And I was going to Ramaz and the truth is my my father didn't want her commuting going down to Ramaz every day. So they started he he managed to con a whole bunch of his friends into sending whose children were the right. same age into starting the first class. And, and they did.
0: And do you know why Ramaz started? For the same reason. That, uh, Rabbi Margulies didn't want his children commuting to another school. I See, mean, that was among the reasons so you go. why yeah. he started the school. There's and, more than a few schools that had started and, that way. And Rabbi Joseph Luxing,
1: Zechno Recha, was my father's mentor, his model well, he was in, the, in life. And, yeah. and my father's entire rabbinate was modeled after Rabbi Luxing.
0: Wow. Well, and so you went to Yeshiva High School?
1: I went to Ramaz.
0: And so you so you you went through as we say the FFB system. I did it. So how did you end up taking what even you would describe as probably a less than traditional route into advertising at that time? were a lot of from people in advertising
1: then? There were very few.
0: Um, I think especially on the non-media side. Yeah,
1: I I think well we'll talk about that media thing because it's kind of interesting actually to bring that up. So. When I went to Ramaz, um, now it's sort of – most of the high schools, some of the Jewish high schools do this. They have a work program in the senior mm-hmm. year because that last few months is, is particular – not a – So most my productive, daughter went early admissions, yeah, yeah. It's not the most productive part of, of, right. of your year. So they have these work programs. And back in those days, we were the second class in Ramaz They have been part of this. So the year before us, they started it. My year was the second year. And you had to work. And the deal was that you had to do something valuable and that you had to learn. You right. had to be in a, in a situation that, that was educational and you weren't allowed to take any money. And so I decided I wanted to work for an ad agency. And the reason was that my father, who at that time was now in government, state government, he was Commissioner of Human Rights, had these friends who had a very um, successful ad agency in New York City. And I went to work for them. And I took to it right. like a fish in water. I was – I. I was creative. It was what I did. I was into creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to write and I, I just never left the business. I became a copywriter and all through college I sold copy to these guys and to some other people. Um, and then I just sort of transitioned into into going into the business.
0: It's, um, it, it's hard to beat the energy. I mean I don't have a lot of experience outside of advertising, but even on the media side, it's hard to beat the energy of uh, an agency – vibe, I oh, think. Oh,
1: I, I agree. I mean, there's, there's a passion that exists here. As you mentioned earlier we're celebrating our 90th year. It's an amazement. Right. I just came from Times Square. We had hundreds of people, and we had this huge billboard interactive. People are tweeting in from all over <laughs> the world, and the tweets are showing. I mean, it's just amazing. There's right? a passion for our business. Our business is about people and places. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel. I still do all around the world. I have the opportunity to meet an incredible Array of people uh, to be connected to people in more countries than I can count and it's just I, I feel privileged that I'm able to do this
0: so um so uh, we're skipping around, but I just want to focus on one of the things you just said so you travel around the world, so as we talk about again the primary topic we 're here to discuss is sort of the balance between living in two worlds, and I would say living fully in two worlds not not saying that. Um, you know, and not to take away from people who own their own business and control their own time, but working for a very big corporation of sixty thousand plus employees, but yet being the president of a shul at the same time, or, you know, varying comparisons and moving around the world. You lived in London for a while, I think, and and Israel and Israel. So being able to move around the world in Atlanta and Atlanta. um, Um, so when you're traveling around the world, what kind of challenges do you face? As Balancing. So the truth of the matter
1: is, I've never, I've never really felt challenged with the balance. I find, so a few things. One is, wherever I go in the world, I get respect. And I, I don't mean personal respect, but people have respect for, for what I do, meaning my beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nobody in the YNR world who doesn't know what my personal religious right. system is. Everybody knows. Um, and people respect me for it. It makes no difference if I'm in Dubai, if I'm in Dublin, or if I'm in, you know, Bangkok. I mean, people people respect that, so that's number one. And I think that that's really that that makes it a lot easier for me. The second thing is I've learned over the years that you have to be careful about what you ask for. And so, for example, if you tell people you're kosher, and say just fig- figure it out. So what happens is you get to somebody's office, and they've looked up kosher online, and they see no meat, and they put out chicken and, you know, shrimp. Mm-hmm. and you kick yourself because these people went to a lot of trouble.
0: They miss it by that much. And and they, right. they did it really for you, and right. you
1: can't eat it. So what do you do? So what I do is I tell them I'm very strict vegetarian, number okay. one, because I find that that's the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. So the funny thing, I went to a meeting this morning, and the people had, had ordered lunch, and they said um, – you know, we understand you're a very strict vegetarian, and, we, right. and I was laughing because of the office here, you know, right. in New, New York, York right. it's easy to say culture, sure. but but that's the thing, right? So I found number one, that was the thing. The second thing is, I have very strict rules. Everybody knows Friday, that's winter it. I shut right. down early, summer it's easier. When I travel, they know the times. Everybody knows Friday, Saturday. That's it. I'm out of pocket.
0: Um, I was interviewing a lawyer who called his assistant from Amsterdam. What time does Shabbos start in Amsterdam? And his Hispanic assistant, without a beat, said, "Rabbi Tom or tam or, uh, or the Gras?
1: <laughs> Gloria, my my assistants know the same thing. Right. They 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 keep it. They know it. Um, they schedule me around it. They right. schedule me. It. But I have I have one strict rule that I've I've kept to, which is that Friday night I have to have what I know to be the very best kosher meal I can possibly have with the best. Bottle of kosher wine. Okay. So, what we do is wherever I go, so, so, uh, what my assistant likes to call sable approved hotels, right? Uh, the hotels that I particularly like to stay in. Um, and she calls the food and beverage manager beforehand, right. gets a menu from, cause I, I won't eat the frozen stuff, right? From whoever the best kosher caterer is. She makes sure and checks often with Lo Chabad, Sh- right. make sure that like she knows all these things. And Friday night, I enjoy the best Friday night I could possibly have. Now what's interesting is that more often than not I'm joined by a sure. bunch of people with me, mostly non jews mm-hmm. who love to do it. we did a we did a Friday night in Beijing that was catered uh, in a, yeah, in Beijing that was catered by the local chabad rabbi that was a blowaway. right and I very often do it in the hotel restaurant because it's just much nicer than doing it in a room. And it's very easy to get brand new glass plates. Sure. Like there is, there's is nothing, and particularly when you travel in Asia, there's nothing you can do. I've had situations where, um, I was in the boondocks someplace in, in Belgium and the hotel manager had come from Brussels and he says, Oh, I know everything. Don't worry. Right. And he had a taxi come up from Brussels with the food. And it was an amazing, it was an amazing day. So that, that to me, so, so Friday night to me, becomes a very that, – that that's part of making my Shabbat. It's always been a, a part of it. In fact, I'm working on it
0: now for for Singapore in two weeks. I've never been to a hotel outside Israel that didn't want to be as accommodating as they could around anything that you asked for. Oh, so. absolutely. I've
1: never, ever had the problem. In fact, what I find is that most of the food and beverage managers have worked in oh, a hotel sure. – where they've done kosher affairs they've done call, whatever and, and they understand it and they and it makes no difference where I am in the world I was in St once care. and
0: I and I sent food just to be warmed up that I had brought with me um, and it, the guy brought it back because it didn't look double wrapped to him. So it was I mean I showed him that it was double wrap, not that he really you know just looking it to be warmed up and he brought it back the guy in the in the kitchen brought it back so I thought that was funny too. But what about I'm sure you've gotten stuck traveling on Fridays not expecting to be that's always my biggest dread. I like I've traveled twice in 25 years on Friday because I'm so paralyzed by it.
1: So I I do worry about that. Um so I have a rule which
0: once you're you know, on a plane which you go is, on I go.
1: I, right. I will not I, I, You know, I'm sure it's not halachically appropriate, but I got to tell you, there's no way I'm sitting for 24 hours in some bench someplace. First of all, I think it's a suck on – I mean, I think there's there's a lot of right. issues around well, it. Oh, you can't
0: even carry in the airport. That's, yeah, you know,
1: I, I, I think there's some issues around it. So if I'm going someplace and God forbid something happens, I get stuck. Hmm. I'm out. Right. I go. I just keep going until I get where I'm going. Right. And the truth is, in all the years, it's it's happened right. maybe once or twice. I'm I'm very careful because I'm much like you. I try not to travel
0: right.
1: on Fridays just because it's a, a. I try even not to travel in the US on Fridays.
0: Right. No, I agree totally because
1: you can get caught in a in a thunderstorm.
0: Four hour delay. And
1: you know, the next thing you know.
0: Right. I was thinking of meeting in Atlanta once, and I was should have been home, no problem. And I was deciding at four o'clock whether I should. Go find a hotel in Atlanta or risk getting home in time.
1: So I did that in Atlanta. I took the, I, I didn't take the hotel. I went to a friend's right. house. So that I didn't mind because it was okay. Right.
0: And I wouldn't but, have gone to Atlanta except that it was David Christopher, um, at AT&T he was requesting the meeting. Otherwise I wouldn't have gone. If it was anybody in a, even a lower level, I would have said. Well,
1: I'll tell you the funniest story. The very first business trip I ever made, I was 22 maybe and I was working at a company called Wells Rich Green, which mm-hmm. at the time is a very, very famous company. And Proctor was our big client. Sure. And we had just gotten that client, and I had gotten this huge – I had been hired from YNR where I was nothing to be like an account supervisor at five times the salary, right. which was about $10 cause in those days. But um, the first time that I'm called to go to Prank and Gamble was on a Friday, sure. and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I went. It was fine. It worked. The second time I was called was on Erev Yom Kippur, and everybody said to me, you're crazy. I said, no, it's easy because – it's early in the morning. I take the first flight in. I'm finished there by 11 o'clock. They promised me there's a 12 o'clock flight. I'm back. It's plenty right. of time. There's no issue. Sure enough, wouldn't you know, it's one of those days boomers are coming through. It's crazy. You can't go. I'm stuck in the airport. There's nothing. There's nothing. You can't. There's nothing to eat. I'm, right. I'm going crazy. So I'm drinking beer with my clients. Those are the days when you know everybody, everybody could come drank, up to the right. gate. No, everybody could come up to the gate with you. Uh, so the clients uh, at the gate were drinking beers and eating pretzels. I'm going, what am I going to do? I call the office. They say, you know what? Get a private plane. We understand. Come home. But you couldn't. They couldn't fly. In. Right, sure. I Finally, manage. I, I find somebody. I'm going to stay in Cincinnati. It's Yom Kippur. But I, they say, no, we're taking off. We're taking off. I get on the plane. I'm praying we're going to go. As we land in New York, I still had maybe 20, 30 minutes. You could literally see the streets were empty. It was this, right. like, you can't even imagine uh, what it was the sea like. The for you. Everybody, to get everybody right. was, was horrid. Right. I, I rolled into shul just as they began calling Nidre and spent the entire Yom Kippur burping up beer. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> it was awful.
0: Nate Siegel tells the story. His wife went into labor on Yom Kippur and when they were driving him to the hospital, there was nobody on the road. He says to the taxi kid drive, what's going on? He goes, Yom Kippur, nobody drives on Yom Kippur. <laughs> so we never knew that, uh, that that's the way it looked. I want to spend some time talking about, um, how we communicate to other people, because I get asked a lot of questions too as they enter the business, but I want to play a clip from something that you had, that you, you had uh, pointed me to that was posted on J Insider, and then we can talk about it on the app.
1: Being observant in the workplace is a challenge of a sort, but it's really not that big a challenge. Today, I'd argue it's, it's zero challenge, right? Because people work, keep to work. I mean, it's not that big a deal. When I started in the business, it was a little more difficult, but what I found is, which is really interesting, I found that everybody gave me respect for it. Even the people that I thought were like, you know, madmen, anti-Semites, gave me huge respect for it. Because first of all, I worked harder. So Thursday night, I was often in the office, particularly in my, in my youth, till two, three o'clock in the morning, knowing that I had to leave at two o'clock on Friday afternoon in the winter. On the Chagim, I always made up those, those dates. What I found afterwards that was really interesting, so when I started my first year and in this business, in the advertising business, and again, it was not a, a particularly Jewish business. and I was particularly working in the non-Jewish firm. So I always thought, oh, these guys, they don't get it. You know, How much respect do they really give me? Turns out that they never even counted those holiday days against my vacation because they were so respectful of the fact that I did take off for them that I didn't make excuses, and that I made up all that time that they came back and they gave me back those days net as, as vacation. So I, I think it's, it's a question of how much you respect yourself. You know, uh, Debbie, my wife and I lived in Atlanta for a, a little over a year. And I remember talking to Jews in Atlanta saying like, how do you take off? How do you get out of the office? I said, you just do it. He said, well, don't people care? I said, no, they respect you for it. If you do it, and if you're upfront about it, but again you have to behave in all the other ways. It's like don't just show up and say, by the way, guys, I gotta take off. If you've been, you know, some real bad guy in meetings, you have a, a terrible HR reputation, you know, your dealings with people aren't good. Right? Then try to take off. Then are they gonna respect you? I doubt it. But again, if 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 you've if you've managed this continuum of your of your Jewishness then people give you all the respect in the world.
0: So I think act- uh, Mark Zamek here on The Stunt Show with David Sable and Occam Siegel Network. There are so many questions I want to ask you just on that two and a half minute clip. Um, ask, ask. Uh, Right. So first of all, so, so the the, fir- the first thing that jumps out to me, I guess maybe goes towards the end, when I was interviewed at Darcy in 89, um, the woman looks at my resume. I was not working at Yarmulke and says, I see they went to, you went to yeshiva. Are you a Sabbath observer? And this woman, I subsequently found out, the one Jewish thing she did was her mother made her wear a skirt on Yom Kippur. That was as far as it went. And um, she said, well, let's say something has to be done at 5 o'clock, and it's the winter, and you have to go home. I go, well, usually you're going to get it early enough. You'll have time to do it. Because what happens, it has to be first thing Monday, and they drop it on your desk. I go, well, I'll come in on Sunday or Saturday night and do the work. He says, let's uh, – and I don't know what gave me the gumption to do it. But I said, look, you can stop your hypotheticals from Friday afternoon until Saturday night. I'm not available. If you don't want to hire me because of it, you don't have to hire me because of it. She ultimately hired me. Fear. Um, but so the question is how do you – when people start pressing you because – and it happens much more at the junior level I see. When I talk to assistant media planners, they say they're really giving me a dirty look when I leave on Friday. Or I'll get calls from the supervisors, what time do you leave on Friday? Like that's irrelevant, right? Are they doing the work? That's what's relevant. How do you you know how do you A tell the kid here's your here's the attitude you have to have? B, how do you talk to the supervisor to say, seriously, tell him what he needs to do and don't bother him? And I guess the follow up on top of that is it's my understanding that most of these guys are told by whoever is sending them in for the interview, don't bring it up unless they ask and try to skirt the issue because HR-wise, they really not let to ask.
1: So that's a lot of questions. I'm sorry. I, you know, so I, let, me, let me step back and, and tell you what happened to me when I first interviewed here at YNR. So I never even got to the question was I Sabbath observer, the fact that I was Jewish alone. I heard in two different interviews, you know, we don't think you'd be comfortable in this department. We don't think you'd be comfortable with this client. And being stupid, you know, being being a, a kid who grew up in Riverdale, whose father at the time was Commissioner of Human Rights for the State of New York, like right. love, I, I didn't I didn't know that there was real discrimination. Right? I didn't grow up with discrimination. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, holy. I'm Jewish. Like that's what they're saying right. to me. We, we don't have room for you. It was a. It was a. It was a real. It was a revelation. My my belief is that if you are, if you do your job, and you're the hardest working person in the group, and everybody sees you're making up the time, nobody bothers you. I've never heard a complaint here at YNR. I have to say, I've never heard anybody come to me, any young observant person and today there, there are a few come to me and say I've had an issue. Somebody's looked at me in a you know give me a dirty look or give me the evil eye because I'm I'm leaving early. I think that I think that and if there are people like that, and you just got to prove to them that you're working harder than, mm-hmm. than everybody else. But I think And that, it doesn't
0: happen the first week. It's going you're gonna have to suck it up for a couple of weeks to prove yourself. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh without a doubt. But I think there's a bigger issue here. And it's what I what I had suggested in that clip that you played.
0: If that is
1: the entire expression of your Judaism, I always say this: like if the entire expression of your Judaism is that you've put on a kippah, or that you leave early, or that you get, you know, you demand the the salami sandwich from Mendes, but you act like an S.O.B. Mm-hmm. and your behavior is just really not appropriate, and you don't do the things, you know, you don't work hard, then shame on you. You're shaming all of us. It's a chil Hashem. You're shaming all of us. And the sad truth is, I just know too many kids who do that. Like They they want the entitlement of what they think is their religious demand, right, which is I get out early and get me the kosher sandwich. And yet they never apply that to their – they never apply what I think are the real issues to their bigger life. So, you know, again, I have – I don't wear a kippah at work. I have never have. Now, the truth is, when I started in the business, it probably…
0: That was it, yeah, the other clip it, I it was, was going to play, but now we don't have to. Yeah, yeah. It, was,
1: it was a different time. Um, today, people do. I have a bunch of people who wear kippah. In fact, there's one young man who's the biggest Kirish Hashem in the world, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. I'm so proud that this, that this young guy wears a kippah. I can't tell you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And his group, when they go out for lunch… They go to Prime Grill or they go wherever they go. Right. Yeah, why not exactly? But here's the beauty of it. I said to his supervisor, you know, it's so nice that you do that. And she just looks at me and she goes, why? Right. And I was so – I literally almost cried when she said it because it was like she didn't want to say to me, oh, yeah, of course we come here. Because just going, no, it's a great restaurant. And the, she she just made it – she like just it was nothing, turned it into right. a thing like it was nothing and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, as I said, I've run into too many who, who do it the other way. So I don't wear a coupon. I always say I don't want somebody to look at me and say, oh, here's the guy who wears a coupon, But he leaves early and he's not this and he's not that. I much rather that when I get the cottage cheese plate, they make right. the connection between the way I behave and my reputation as a person and as a business person to that cottage cheese and just say, oh, yeah, he's the guy who gets the kosher plate.
0: So it's interesting about the yarmulke because I had the same discussion with myself 25 years ago when I started, and for all the reasons that you list, I did not wear a yarmulke for the first 14, 15 years of my career. I had the opportunity to do a couple of couple things after I had left MediaVest, and when I came back, I said to myself, for all of those reasons is why I should wear the yarmulke, because I I am being held to a higher standard, and I should remind myself I'm held to that. Now I don't know that I made the right or the wrong choice. I think as a managing partner at this level. It doesn't matter as much, Um, but uh, no. But
1: I think it's great that you do. Again, my it was. But I'm totally
0: conscious of it all the time. But
1: it was my personal choice. I say I don't want to be totally conscious of it. It, It's uh, because I I can't. I I represent I represent this entire company to the world, and it's not that I and I want to represent it as a person. I don't want to be represented by anything other than who I am, and I want my I want my I want my my Jewishness, or my Yiddishkeit. You know, it's funny the the this gets into whole this gets all philosophical issues of you know modern Orthodox. Right. To me, that's it's irrelevant Yiddishkeit. So I had a client in Israel when I lived in Israel who was the the most secular person you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Like you know, he would eat. Cheeseburgers with a glass of milk on Yom Kippur. I mean, sure. He was like the most secular person. The single most important value to him in doing business with a person was whether they had Yiddishkeit. Right. It was crazy. Right. How did he define Yiddishkeit? He defined Yiddishkeit by whether whether you had that that Yiddish neshama, whether your soul had all those great Jewish values that are so important: being kind, being open. Um, being fair, you know all the things you'd, you you mm-hmm. would hope. So to me, that's critical. Like I want people to look at me and say, "Wow, this is this guy can run this company, but hasn't forgotten where he comes from." You know, he still sits out in the open. His door is always open. He helps everybody. That's what I want. You don't have to. a door. I know. You noticed that, right? I Can't believe that. That's part of the <laughs> thing, right? Open, 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 open.
0: Um, if, if do you think you mentioned that you're leading a company? Do you think had you worn the Almaka there's another question I asked myself recently, had you worn the almaka for whatever reason, that once you became CEO, you would have taken it off because it's less about you than at that point?
1: No. I think if I'd always worn it, I would have kept it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think if I'd always worn it, it would have been, it would have been different. But, but again, as I said, I just didn't think it was appropriate to, for me personally. Right. I, I'm not that good. I curse. Right. Right. I, I, I curse. So I can't wear a pine and be the guy that curses. Right. You just can't. I just don't want to do it. So this young gentleman said, you never hear a bad word come out of his mouth. Now, God forbid that i would ever curse anybody, but, you know, I'll, the expletive right. will slip out of my mouth every once in a while when I'm working or doing something. It's not appropriate to wear a kippah, in my opinion, and do that for me. It's right. not appropriate for me. So when young people ask me, should they wear a I tell them it's your choice. Then I'm happy either way, but then I give them the balance. I say, you know, here's this one guy who doesn't, who does wear it, and he's a total kiddush Hashem as far as I'm concerned because he's the hardest working person here. He has values that are off the chart. His clients love him, the people who he works with love him, and he's smart as as can be.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: On the other hand, you know, I curse.
0: Right. So I said, I don't
1: wear one. I said, you make the choice. If you can be like this guy, we're a kippah.
0: But to your point, everybody knows you live a different kind of lifestyle and different things are important to you and… Absolutely. You know, and that, and that, uh, and that plays out that way.
1: Absolutely. Anybody who looks at my desk sees that there's a Tanakh there, there's right. a Sidur there, it's,
0: you know. Right, I have a couple stickers on my computer and it's interesting who comes, who will come in and ask me what they mean. Like people see they know it's Hebrew, but they'll not know what they mean. But it's, it, part of those stickers on my computer remind me that I'm wearing a homie. So, um, it's always there in front of me. Um, as part of the, big corporate lifestyle and the big corporate, you know, it's not only in this case about YNR, it's about WPP and all these other corporations around the world. You found that you really don't have issues at all.
1: No. And and, and as you heard in that clip, even going back all those years ago, so here I was in YNR, which wasn't a particularly Jewish-friendly, certainly not religious Jewish-friendly right. place. And yet I discovered only later that when I did take off for the hagim, which really, you know, you can get away. All right, Yom Kippur, nobody has a has a problem with. Right. Sukkot. Right. A week uh, later. Right. Exactly. Torah, forget about sure it. Forget it. That's it. like is a complete ripoff, right? right? Like that's like like you're making that one up, right? right. Pesach, it's like forget it. You can't. It's it's really. In, you know, it's, it starts to get, it starts to right. get a little crazy. Even for me, it gets a little crazy. Right. This year I said, like, is it the same as is a ripoff? This is crazy. Right. And I used to get, I used to get a note, tongue in cheek, from one of my bosses who wasn't Jewish. So he, he said, at the beginning of, like, right before Al Shoshana, he sends to me and Debbie a note that says, my very best wishes for the new year and for the beginning of the Jewish oh, ripoff right. season. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs>
0: All right, this you, year it's it, worse. This year I think it's Tuesday, and Wednesday, everything. Right. Sort of like so that. you know what I used to?
1: I still do this actually. I started this many, many years ago. So they always publish the beginning of September the alternate side of the street parking right. regulations. I pointed out. I said here, here's the alternate side of the street parking regulation calendar for the next three months. Right. You'll know when I'm <laughs> in the office and when I'm not. That works. So everybody, everybody right. left. But I was, what I was going to say though about YNR. So when I when I when I did take off for those chagim what I discovered was at the end that they never counted it as a day off so i was just a kid i didn't have that much time off
0: it turns out like you were just filling out your time sheets wrong they would have counted <laughs> it had they known, right no no
1: no they they didn't they didn't count it. i was i was writing it down as vacation days because right. i thought i had to and there was somebody above me who would who would just cross it out and they put it down as personal days because they felt i made up all the time i always made up the time i always mm. worked a little bit harder and so, you know, when when you realize that, you realize that people have respect for you if you have respect for yourself.
0: And, and people know the lines you won't cross. I mean, I had a conversation with um, uh, my boss at one point at Darcy, um, or maybe it was even MediaVest already, when we were sitting at the pool in San Antonio because the meeting got delayed by 24 hours. And he said, "We've never really had a problem with your observance, you know." And at, at the point once I was reporting to the media director, it wasn't a problem at all. And uh, I said, yeah, because you know, if you uh, if I'm walking out the door on Friday and you say, if you leave now, don't come back Monday, you know I'm going to leave now and not come back Monday. So there's very little to discuss after that. And up until that point, I'm happy to do whatever I can do.
1: So it's just – So I'll give you an interesting hop on that. So about a year ago, we had a fairly major crisis that broke on a Friday morning. It started at about 4 o'clock. I got called from London, from our, our corporate headquarters. Mm-hmm. Something had happened. And – Literally from four o'clock till later in the afternoon, we were on the phone, press releases, interviews, crazy, crazy, mm-hmm. crazy. And later in the day, like literally about half hour before Shabbat, it looked like it had all come down. I get an email from our, our uh, group CEO, Martin Sorrell saying, great, you know, we managed this really well. And I think, yeah, great. So something had me look at my email like 10 minutes before Shabbat, cause I was ready to, to close right. down until we made it the thing blew up again. And I quickly called three or four people, my PR director, my CFO, and I said, look, I'm shutting down. Here's what you got to watch out for. Here's the five things to say. I'll be back on in 25 hours. Goodbye. And I put it down. Now, the, the truth is, I always say, one of the interesting things I find about Shabbat is that during the day, during the week, if I'm out of range of my email for three seconds, mm-hmm. I get the shakes. Somehow, on Shabbat, it doesn't ever bother me. Like literally from the time Kabbalah Shabbat begins until right. after Abdullah, I don't think about it. I don't get nervous. I don't like stress. Like it is what it is. What am I going to do? Right. But I was really, really, this this was a big deal. It was, it it, it could have hurt the company. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a lot of issues. It wasn't just me. It was places around the world. And I said to my wife, look, I don't know what I'm going to do. I might have to look. I, I don't know. Right. And so, but I didn't. I didn't touch it. As it turns out, everybody handled it well, got okay. back on, and it was fine. It, the beauty of it was that my, my, my younger daughter sent me an email afterwards and said, you know, Dad, she happened, she and her husband happened to be with us at Shabbat. She said, you know, Dad, you really inspired me. This is an unintended consequence of doing the right thing. She said, you really inspired me because I know how stressed you were. Mm-hmm. But, and we had company. She said, you never mentioned it. You never brought it up. You didn't tell anybody at the table that this thing was going on, and I know how much you wanted to be looking at your email and be on the phone, and you weren't.
0: Did you? But don't you think maybe there was less stress because you knew that you couldn't look? No. As opposed to being out of range of the no, it was the, the, the three first, bars. No, it was the first time I was ever wow. I was ever really
1: stressed, and I just decided I just decided I got through this much of my life without doing it. What was I going to do? Well, they have your I
0: address. They can take it car wasn't, and have a conversation with you I have wasn't going
1: to do it. Yeah. And which they could have. And right. has, has happened in the past. But that was it. And so it
0: worked. My, uh, cousin is a pulpit rabbi in Teaneck, And he also is completely addicted to the email from the black of the iPhone constantly. And he was making a Shabbat Shuvah dress a couple of years ago where Shabbat Shuvah was on, was, uh, Rosh Hashanah was Thursday and Friday. So here he is on Shabbos Shuvah in the afternoon talking about the fact that he's addicted to email. And then he says, and for whatever reason, for the past three days, I've been without it. doesn't bother me. I don't miss it whatever. I walked over to him afterwards and I say, big shot, you're a pulpit rabbi of an orthodox shul. Who's emailing you over Shabbos? <laughs> I got 300 emails in my email box. When I get home, what do you think is going to happen? At least 300. Right, exactly. So just from the copy that, you know, that I don't need to see, but uh, – you know, and that I think is some of the disconnect um, between people who who live really in a from kind of world job function view. Those of us perhaps who are more open, they don't realize some of the choices and difficulties that we have to. That we and and, and difficulty is the wrong word. Challenge also is the wrong word. It's just an extra thing it's on my list that I have to worry yeah, about. right? Yeah, you have to make
1: choices. I mean, it's, look, there's no question. You know, from one, from one point of view, there's an argument that it would just be a lot easier to take a much harder view and say, this is what I, this is what I do, this is what I won't do, this is how I dress, this is how I won't dress, this is what I wear, this is what I won't wear, and be that kind of a person. And, right. and that's fine. I mean, it works for some people. Personally, it doesn't work for me, but I,
0: but it is easier. I really do believe it's easier to do that. My boss has said to me any number of times on Friday afternoon, I don't know how you do it. Just going to show off for the whole day tomorrow. After some crisis, that's whatever. And I say, quite honestly, I don't know how you do it by not having that one day to completely shut off. I agree. Everybody's jealous, right? They don't re- I, Early on in my career, people would say, "Oh, I can't believe you get to go home early on Friday." I go, "Let me give you a list of the things I can't do for the next twenty-four, five hours." And for twenty-three, twenty-four-year-old kids, not being able to go out to the bar, not being able to go to the movies, do whatever it is, they forget it. I'll stay at work for another three hours. They, you know, that they don't know what giving that up is, and I don't think it works halfsies, meaning that those people who say, you know, this week I will, this week I won't, or I'll have a Friday night meal, but we'll go shopping on Shabbos or whatever it is, I think you have to be an all-in to really get that full, you know, I posted on my Facebook page this week, those people who think you can't catch up on your sleep have never met Shabbos. That's true. I agree. <laughs> you know, because it's a regular thing. You know what you're going to get. I a Thursday night, who needs to sleep on Thursday night, Right because um, you know what's coming tomorrow. Or so we, except we have company. Anyway, um, do you have uh I'm sure you do, a funny anecdote of how your two worlds might have collided at one point or some you know, some client being shocked or, or <laughs> I have a few. Um,
1: I'll tell you the worst and I'll tell you a, a funny one. So the worst that ever happened to me was I had a client um his client was he was a bit of a drinker, he was pretty notorious. And the guy that I worked for at the time was an Italian guy, a sweet guy, nice guy. And his office overlooked St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it was Ash Wednesday. We come in and the client who was fairly observant himself had gone and done his ashes and he had the mm-hmm. ash mark on his forehead. Now I didn't stare at him, I didn't look at him. And listen. Like what's weird about putting ashes on your forehead, right? right. We, we strap, Please. you know, boxes on our right. forehead. Everybody. So it didn't even occur to me that this. Like, but he was obviously feeling very, very self-conscious. So he points to the circle of ashes on his forehead and he said, "See this, Sable? This is the real thing. None of your yummy crap." And he kind of puts his hand over his head. So I just looked at him and I said, "Now." My supervisor, Angelo, always smoked a big cigar, and in those days you could, and was mm-hmm. smoking a big cigar. So I said, you know, I'm glad you told me that, Jack, because I was worried that Angelo had put his cigar out in your forehead, and you didn't realize <laughs> it. Now, I remember I was, at that time, maybe 23 years old, right. and Angelo just looks at me and goes, you're fired. Get out of here. And I just turned around and walked out. I didn't know what to do. Right. To the client's credit, he came after me and apologized. And said, I, "I didn't mean to do that," and, then, and of course, being wise, knowing that like I'd sue the hell out of them right. for that. So that was like that was sort of like the, the worst, right. the worst that ever happened. One of the funniest that ever happened is that I was on a flight from um, Hong Kong to Jakarta, and this is a long time ago. And Jakarta was not like a major place that mm-hmm. the Jews went to, and we had we had gone through a a whole series of um, anti-terrorism classes this was during that period of time in the 80s when there were a bunch of hijackings mm-hmm. and you know it was it was pretty difficult and they told us at the time one of the things you know always put an extra sweater on if the plane is hijacked they gave us all these things to mm-hmm. do right so one of the things they said is never order kosher meals right whatever you do do not order a kosher meal it's Breath the leg. wrong thing. Order vegetarian. If you order kosher, it's just an indication. So imagine the scene. I'm on this plane. I'm going to Jakarta. <laughs> it's this plane filled with Indonesians. And this stewardess gets on and says, who ordered the oh, kosher great. meal? Have to raise hand now. Now, I almost died. They've never ordered a kosher meal for me before. And right. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Like, they ordered a kosher meal. They're going to mention my name in a second. Then the plane's not going to get hijacked. They're just going to open the door right, and throw me out Right. The- right. All of a sudden, half the plane raises their hand, and I realized right. that they were all ordering kosher meals because it was better than the halal
0: uh, coming well, out of coming funny.
1: out of Hong Kong. <laughs> so again, it was just one of those funny moments where you know you think, oh my god, you oh freeze, my god, oh right? my god, you freeze, and meanwhile the whole plane is ordered kosher meals because you know it's like they didn't trust. As it turns out, they didn't trust the halal coming out of out of Hong Kong.
0: You know, there's an expression. I think it's called bageling. You know what bageling yeah. is. Begling is is when two Jews who meet who are not obviously overtly Jewish, and one of them realizes the other one is Jewish, and they just try to hint oh, you and get say to certain things where you get to the the keywords and <coughs> excuse me. So I'm wondering. I'm sure you've crossed. The truth is, I think one of the, the Colgate clients that we have in common is a religious guy. Yeah. Um. So, who is not? I mean, he's. I would say he's. Clearly Jewish looking, but he's certainly not, you know, overtly religious in his office practice. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm wondering if you, have, if, if across people who like now, uh, you meet somebody wearing a yarmulke in a business meeting and you're trying to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Make I call, that connection. They refuse
1: to believe. I call it the Jew vibe. So first of all, I have it, I have it, I have it in a few ways. One, just if, even with my Hebrew. Um, because I speak Hebrew, and having lived in Israel, I've been in the mm-hmm. army, and done all that stuff, so I've sat mm-hmm. in meetings with Israeli high tech companies right. who, who should have done their homework and didn't. And they'll start talking, and they'll say, and they'll start talking Hebrew, and you just watch them die. Right? Like they can't believe that the CEO of Young Rubicon could possibly. My
0: father pulled that on somebody
1: once. Could possibly say Hebrew. They, I love it. It's right. it's the funniest. Um, but I've had I've had the I've had really interesting uh, experience. We had one one person I worked with. And this guy, I worked for him, and I got no Jew vibe from him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No Jew vibe, nothing, like bagel whatever you want to call it. But I got zero vibe, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't. It didn't occur to me he was Jewish. Right. And I think even in those days he probably worked on Yom Kippur. I'm pretty sure he did actually. And like nobody works on the non-Jews didn't work on Yom Kippur right. in those days, like crazy. This is like what the hell? Like I can't believe this is happening. Like and it, 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 so he clearly wasn't. He clearly wasn't Jewish, but we knew his wife was. And so we invite him for Friday night as we mm-hmm. do, and he comes Friday night and his wife went over, and I gave him a coupon. You know, he's standing there, and he starts singing Shalom Alechem, and I point out the page. You know, we have the we have the uh, NCSY art right, scroll with version the with, a, right. with little uh, stickies so people right. can turn to the page. You know, because right. we're used to having these kind of people. All of a sudden, he starts singing Shalom Alechem, right. like really singing it, right? And then he makes kiddish. Turns out he's Jewish. Right. Not as Jewish. Uh, He went to, you know, the equivalent of Cheder. But, he just, but he, but no idea. And then what happened after that was, it it was, it happened to a few people here at YNR. As I got more senior in the company, these people start coming out of the closet.
0: Right. Because they saw that you could be that way. So you mentioned just, you had, so you occasionally have colleagues over, For Friday night dinner. Um, Is that a normal thing? Like, were you invited over to your boss's house? Is that something particularly Jewish where you feel that you want to share?
1: Yeah, I think it's particularly Jewish. I like sharing. I I find it important to share the Chagim, Shabbat and Chagim, with people who work for me, uh, particularly if they're not Jewish. Because I think it gives them a sense of of who I am and Mm -hmm. who my family is. and, and, And I think it gives them a sense of understanding of what we do. So I have a... A new uh, young chief of staff who's uh, from Scotland. He's never had any Jewish background. I mean, where would he come from, Scotland? Right. And whatever. he's been to us for um, Seder. He's been Shabbat, and he loves it. And, and we got him a, in the rain. We'll see how much he loves <laughs> it. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. We got him a, a tartan kipan, his uh, in his clan's tartan, well. and he wears and carries proudly with him. So I, I, find that to be, I find that to be very important because you know, I can take people out to dinner anytime and right. take them to a restaurant, which I do as well. But I think when you invite somebody into your house and they get a sense of what, of what Shabbat really means to you, of what the Chag really means to you, of it changes, it changes their perception.
0: It's interesting because I always struggle with sharing too much. I, I think that I share much more than people who I work with. Could be just me, my perception, and so much of what I share because some of what, what happens outside the office surrounds religion. Even whether it's JAM the AM or anything like that, is surrounding something Jewish, and I don't feel that people share as much. So I just that's probably true. But Debbie Jewish and I, thing. we like
1: to do it. We find that we we always find it interesting, and we find that you know even coming to Seder. I mean, he prepared right. I gave him stuff to read. I gave him I gave right. him a part. I said this is going to be your part, and he read his part, and it was great. And it it just, I think it just adds to, I think it adds to people's appreciation. And then he talks to other people about it. And he got back and he comes from our our office in London. People from there called me and said, oh my God, we heard, you know, it's so beautiful. And so to me, that's really important because it gives, again, because it's so much a part of our life, because it's so much a part of what, of who we are Mm -hmm. and what we do. I bring, you know, on Purim, I bring hamantash into it. People know it. It's like famous. And they know it. The, the Chanukiah in the, in the, in the lobby of the old YNR was called the Sable Chanukiah because many, many years right. ago, when I would reached a point where I was senior enough to, to do it, it, it was always, it, the, the Christmas atmosphere in YNR was always very strong. It was actually quite mm-hmm. nice. I used to right, love coming absolutely. into the, I used to love coming into the lobby and you'd hear the carols going, big Christmas, big wreaths, or whatever. So one year I said, you know what? I'm senior enough. I'm getting a Hanukkah. So I went out and I got a beautiful, um, electric Hanukkah. We put it up and it's been there ever since.
0: So you bring it uptown with you? Of course. Okay, good. Um, and I guess the, the biggest, you, so you've moved up from Madison Avenue to Columbus Circle, but the bigger move now is Prime Grill is moving up with you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Talk away. to
1: Joey. Joey's coming up with,
0: <laughs> Joey's coming with me. So I can't wait till they open. Um, so anyway, wrapping up with, uh, David Sables, Mark Zamek on the Stunt Show on the Nahum Siegel Network. It has been, uh, uh, very, hopefully very, op- uh, eye-opening for our listeners. And it certainly has been for me. And, um, it, it's certainly something that, uh, we preach a lot. It's a lifestyle choice that we've all made to live in both worlds. And it's a lifestyle choice to say it works and, just like any other things it takes a, ma- a amount of effort to do it and but the effort probably pays off
1: i hope so and like i'll just leave you with one last thought i i'm a firm believer that either we are orla goyema or we're not and so i try to live my entire life by that premise either i'm a light or i'm not a light and i try to use that as my personal filter so if my behavior isn't something that i Want people to emulate, or I think people should emulate, then I know I'm in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So I think being in Goya I think that's so critical to who we are. Can't I think, hurt
0: to be in an Goya.
1: And I and I think if you want to be successful in the in the corporate world, like keep that in mind.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. We Thank appreciate you. it. Was great. It's great. Okay. Thank you sweet. very much. Thanks to our guest David Sable, for spending an hour with us, and what a message to end off with, and what a great message for the Malcolm Siegel Network. This is Mark Zamek. This is a Stunt Show. Thanks everybody for listening. Or Lagoyum, that's what we have to be. This is the Nachum Signal Network. This is JM the AM.org.